In the fall of 1936, Dr. Felix Kirsten sat quietly across from one of his patients. The man was squat and podgy, suffering chronically from grossly painful stomach aches, the likes of which only seemed to subside with Kirsten's magic hands. The doctor's notoriety was global and gaining as he quickly ascended into the role of the most coveted physician in all of Europe. With clients hailing from renowned royalty, deceivingly dignified diplomats, feared families of fascist regimes, and foreign leaders who would wait weeks just to be touched and transformed. But the morbidly ordinary figure that sat across from the physician now, eyes framed and flecked in gold, appeared unassuming, uninteresting, and even mundane. Yet, he would rise in the shadows of power in just a few short years to be matched equally, if not surpass, the power held by the greatest of monarchs and leaders around the world. No stranger to the fragility of his patient's pride, Kirsten gathered himself and carefully calculated the words that came next. Why is it that you feel so compelled to destroy the homosexual? And in what must have resembled a seismic shift, the patient turned cross and indignant. The visage of slothful and sheepish normality cleaved open to reveal a scission of hate, burning black and proliferating. They're a danger to the national health. Just think how many children will never be born because of this, and how a people can be broken in nerve and spirit when such a plague gets a hold of it. In certain circumstances, there will be a child. So much the worse. For then, the homosexual tendency will be inherited. And, if a man in the government has homosexual tendencies, then he abandons the normal order of things for the perverted world of the homosexuals. Such a man always drags ten others after him. Otherwise, he can't survive. The homosexual is a traitor to his own people and must be rooted out. We mean to get rid of the homosexuals, root and branch. And the patient that was once thought to appear as unassuming, uninteresting, and even mundane, in less than a decade, would be responsible for the systematic killing of millions upon millions of people, of which thousands upon thousands would be homosexuals. His name was Heinrich Himmler. I'm Caleb Franklin, and this is Root and Branch, Gay Survival and the Holocaust. 
Episode 1. A Deadly Discourse Takes Shape It's no secret that the seemingly innocuous Heinrich Himmler now lives infamously in history as the devious counterpart to Adolf Hitler, the creator and leader of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or more widely known as the Nazi Party. Now, knowing of the horrors and devastation of human life inflicted on the world at the hands of Germany's Third Reich, it's normal and crucial to wonder, how did this happen? Victim statistics are nothing short of unreal. According to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, approximately 6 million Jews, 6 million Soviet civilians, 3 million Soviet prisoners of war, 312,000 Serbs, 250,000 disabled individuals, between 250 to 500,000 Roma and Sinti, or more derogatorily known as gypsies, and between 10 to 30,000 homosexuals, all fell prey to the malicious might of the Nazi party. Widely known as the greatest genocide in history by death toll, the Holocaust is an event unique not only in its numbers, but also in its movements from what began as a desire for more conservative values to authoritarian laws enacted to preserve the purity of a fictitious race, to the eventual attempt of complete and total annihilation of any oppositional force that threatened the realization of the dream of racial and spatial expansion. At the time of Himmler's conversation with physiotherapist Kirsten, the Nazi party had been in control of the German government for three years, ultimately seizing absolute control with the death of President Paul von Hindenburg in August of 1934. But before the small office conversation between Himmler and Kirsten, before the death of President Hindenburg, before Hitler's historic ascension to rule the Weimar Republic, and even before the grips of global Great Depression at the start of the 1930s, the seeds of persecution against the homosexual had been sown through a quiet, covert discourse that would eventually reach a raging rhetoric of deadly proportions. To understand the quiet, steady growth of hatred against such minority groups as homosexuals and Jews, we first must learn for ourselves what is discourse and what is rhetoric. According to the University of Chicago, discourse is most simply understood today as a sort of unit of language organized around a particular subject matter and meaning. 
This unit of language may include not only written or verbal language, but can also stretch to include photos, videos, or laws, in which there appears what French philosopher Michel Foucault identifies as a medium through which power and norms function. More simply put, the input of specific utterances, writings, or expressions have the potential to wield great social power, in which they have the potential to create and set a structure of norms that are believed to be true. Similarly, rhetoric also deals with language and how it functions socially. Aristotle defined rhetoric as an ability, in each particular case, to see the available means of persuasion. More current definitions of rhetoric describe it as a set of methods people use to identify with each other, to encourage each other to understand things from one another's perspectives. Ultimately, discourse and rhetoric are typically intertwined to complete a successful persuasion of an individual or group of individuals. For example, if the discourse around a particular subject, let's say a rat, is characterized by fear, disease, and uncleanliness, that discourse might then be employed by a rhetorician, perhaps a politician, to persuade the public that the total and complete eradication of said subject would be beneficial to everyone. Because who wants to live in fear? Who wants incurable diseases running rampant? Who wants to be unclean? The discursive build against homosexuals began to take shape almost a decade before Hitler would implement his rhetoric to target them, along with so many others, leading them all to a fate no one but the leaders of the Third Reich could imagine. The ending of the First World War marked the blossoming and blooming of sexual exploration in Germany. Many soon came to view Berlin as the global capital for sexual freedom, and Germany as a country of genuine modernism. Author Frank Rector notes that this sexual unshackling was also a result of a desperate lunge towards a re-examination and reformation of values. With the failure of the previous constitutional monarchy, a monarchy which Rector states led its people into the gory jaws of war and aggression, a longing for something new was felt by every citizen of Germany, and Berlin was brimming with idealizations and realizations of newness. Tourists would flock to the Mikado, one of 40 different gay bars in Berlin, to gawk and giggle at the male prostitutes, see lesbians in suits using the men's room, and oppositely see men in dresses using the ladies' room. But the Mikado was apparently the exception, not the rule, 
Most gay hangouts were urbane, civil, sophisticated, and included clientele such as aviators, stockbrokers, and marvelously mustached men who wore perfume and kissed openly in the corner booths of cafes. Devious or divine, author Michael Davidson perhaps describes the aura of Berlin best. I loathed Berlin for the first week I was there, and then suddenly I saw that it was the most exciting town one could conceive of. Babylon, Gomorrah, Rome in decay, and yet galvanic with an intellectual liveliness. On the one hand, squalor, drunkenness, penury, and ubiquitous underworld, dramatic violence and despair, the turbulence of gangster politics, the whole spectrum of sexual lust, with some unimagined hues added, displayed like fruit in an open Mediterranean marketplace. On the other, a novel flowering, as if rain had fallen after a long drought, of architecture, the theater, music, satire, a new liberty of ideas, a wonderful release of the individual. And while many reveled in the idea of what was popularly termed as Sin City, a notable faction grew disdainful of the prevalent perversions and deviant members of Berlin society. As the sexual revolution grew in Berlin, so did the visibility of homosexuals, which in turn provided panic, as well as a palpable structure for politicians like Hitler to build their ladder of ascension on. And while societal panic around homosexuals gained traction and popularity with members of the German population, Hitler was known to have close confidants, as well as members and leaders of his own party that identified as homosexual. The most notable of these was the leader and co-founder of the SA, a militia group that helped bring Hitler into power, Ernst Rahm. It was public knowledge that Rahm was homosexual, a fact many satirist newspapers of the time took full advantage of. Although Rome was publicly ridiculed by many, it wasn't until Hitler began to listen to the discourse of the time that spoke of the hate of homosexuals and their inability to reproduce that Hitler would consider turning those discursive whispers into a roaring rhetoric that would have murderous consequences. Ever the astute student of the study of public sentiment Hitler was well aware of what the German people desired and needed long before his 1933 naming as Chancellor of Germany. With the crash of the US stock market in 1929, unemployment grew, tariffs increased, taxes climbed higher and higher, all reverberations of the Great Depression, which were felt by the German population in all of which gave Adolf Hitler more ammunition to use against the outdated policies of the Weimar Republic. As Hindenburg became older and more senile, 
he enacted Article 48, which allowed the president to govern by decree in a state of emergency. In this political climate, Hitler saw his chance for success and thus ran in a series of highly important elections. But all three elections within 1932 led to the same disappointing result. It is said that at the end of the third election, Hitler considered suicide and wondered if his window of opportunity had been shut tight. But that window would be opened once again by former Chancellor Franz von Papen, who convinced President Hindenburg to name Hitler Chancellor in the hopes that he would retain the title of Vice-Chancellor for himself. Convinced by Papen that the conservative government could quell the rise of the Nazi upstart, Hindenburg agreed, and on the 30th of January, 1933, Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. Canadian scholar and professor Doris Bergen notes that Hitler's ideology functioned with a sense of urgency. According to Hitler, time was running out. It was five to midnight for the Aryan race to be saved, and the clock was ticking. This sense of urgency, coupled with public sentiment around the threat of not only homosexuals, but also minority groups such as Jews, and communists meant that Hitler's ascension to complete and total power over Germany would be decisive and rapid. He began his political revolution with the communists of Germany. In February of 1933, Hitler blamed a fire that overtook the German parliament building, or the Reichstag, on a communist plot to overtake Germany. This event gave him power to order massive reprisals against Germany's communists. Thousands were arrested, tortured, and beaten. Hundreds more were shot dead in the street. Bergen notes that the actions of late February 1933 crippled communist power in Germany. Next, the German chancellor would begin his social revolution with a group of individuals more openly disdained than even the Jews, homosexuals. Since 1871, the German criminal code that had outlawed sexual relations between men, also known as paragraph 175, had become slacked with the sexual revolution of the 20s. But now imbued with more power from the German government, Hitler built on to 175 to ban homosexual rights organizations. Raids and arrests were made on the over 40 gay bars in Berlin. And perhaps the most notable was the raid and destruction of Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Research in Berlin. Hirschfeld was a public gay rights activist that was openly opposed by the Nazi party. His defeat in the eyes of the German public was a successful battle against the spread of homosexuality. And while all these events signaled the coming of a great revolution, there is a single, momentous event in which the revolution was solidified 
and the Nazi ideology cemented in the minds and opinions of the German population. The end of the Nazis' revolutionary phase is one that can be uniquely marked with reference to a singular, sinister event. Known by many names such as the Blood Purge or Realm's Purge, the infamous Night of Long Knives took place on the 30th of June, 1934. While Hitler's power and influence continued to grow, so did his paranoia. Always on the cusp of crisis and critically aware of the fragile and temporal nature of his position, the dictator planned to divide and conquer his generals in order to maintain complete and total control. A likely target for Hitler, as well as his loyal henchmen Goebbels, Himmler, and Goering, was found in Ernst Röhm. As the leader of the SA, Röhm possessed massive power, comparable only to the Fuhrer himself. His ability to remove any of his fellow competitors from their positions became a plausible and likely strategy that other generals feared would come to fruition if Rome could not be stopped. With this great surge in power came an equal surge in worry. However quick and imprudent Hitler's wartime's decisions would eventually become, he held patience for Rome's reckoning until he felt the people of Germany would support his decision. Soon, he was equipped with a manufactured dossier tying Rome to a planned coup with the French government, pressure and fabrication from Himmler and Goering being fed to him on a daily basis, and his own fears and anxieties multiplying. The Fuhrer knew the time for action was ripe. So, in the dead of night, on the 30th of June, 1934, Hitler's loyal SS struck. Doris Bergen wrote, It is often said that a revolution devours its own children, and Hitler's revolution was no exception. Painted in blood and barbarous fury, the SS fanned out, killing not only Rome, but also other allies and close confidants of the Fuhrer which included Nazi ideologue Gregor Strasser, as well as Berhard Stimpfel, a Roman Catholic priest who aided Hitler in writing Mein Kampf while they were incarcerated together. The total concrete number of individuals killed remains unknown. Some sources put deaths as low as 150. Others estimate into the thousands. And with this mass assassination playing such a pivotal part in the Nazi revolution, you might expect the public reaction to be as historically momentous. But ultimately, sentiments across Germany were surprisingly unflinching and uneventful. The strategic annihilation of chosen enemies of the Fuhrer even garnered a congratulatory message from President Hindenburg rallying Hitler's decisive action and praising his ability 
to bring his own party back into the fold of organization and discipline. With the successful execution of the Night of Long Knives, a road riddled with fire, blood, and destruction would be set for millions to travel down in the coming decade. And of those millions, unique voices would emerge into the world that was, at least for a short period of time, free from the global chokehold and persecution of war. But what waited for those men beyond the barbed fences of Hitler's killing centers felt like a continuation of persecution. And for some, it would last until the very end of their lives. Now that we've established the deadly discourse that led to open persecution of homosexuals, we can better understand the struggle, pain, and survival of those who were faced with the horrible reality of being gay while living in the time of the Nazis. Through their unique and at times heart-wrenching stories, we will learn more about resilience and strength, but also how genocide and devastation, however unique, is often a repercussion of an overly common technique of warping and manipulating public discourse. Root and Branch is produced, written, and researched by me, Caleb Franklin. Music and sound design by Benjamin Dunn and artistic direction by Lindsay Franklin. Stay tuned to hear why remembering the events of the Holocaust is so important today and every other day, as well as how Root and Branch will use an ancient memory technique to help listeners commit survivor stories to their memory. A phrase commonly associated with the Holocaust is, never again, and the meaning, while seemingly straightforward, is incredibly intricate. Believed to be a reference to the 1927 poem Masada, a historical epic, by Yitzhak Lambden, in which he details the historical struggle of Jews to survive against countless enemies has now been tied to the catastrophic genocide since liberated survivors of Buchenwald concentration camp held signs with the phrase boldly written in 1945. Since then, never again has been used by survivors, memorials, and advocates against genocide in the hopes of eliminating the possibility of another holocaust. But some have invoked the phrase to be an umbrella term of sorts in reference to all forms of genocide, such as the 1976 Argentine coup, the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 
and even gun control. For the purposes of this podcast, we will use scholar Hans Kellner's definition as our reference, in which he states that the phrase, order someone to resolve that something shall not happen for a second time. In this case, that someone is the global population, and that something would be another event like the Holocaust. But what is the first step in stating meaning and living never again? Well, a logical and almost too obvious answer is simple. Remember. To truly say never again, we must first commit not only the events, the people, and the perpetrators to memory, but also the nature of discourse surrounding targeted groups and the slow-moving rhetoric that convinced a nation to believe that its leaders and their chaotic cause were just. In this way of remembering, we are able to be more aware of a shifting discourse of our own and hopefully provide a more proactive perspective. So how might we remember so as to never forget and to never let something happen like the Holocaust again. A possible answer is one that we will explore on this season of Root and Branch. Best known as the Memory Palace Technique, or the Method of Loki, this strategy for memorization is defined by the National Library of Medicine as a mnemonic device that relies on spatial relationships between locations on a familiar route, or rooms in a familiar building called memory palaces. To arrange and recollect memorial content. It's important that this imagined palace is a place that is familiar to you. It could be the house you grew up in, a classroom you visited often, a place of work. It could even be the route you walk home each day. But the most crucial aspect about your memory palace is that you remember the ins and outs almost instantly, with little to no thought. So now that we've covered the palace, what goes inside to help us remember? Images and items. They'll occupy different spaces throughout our palace route to create a series of interconnected vignettes that will piece by piece tell the story of what we need to remember. As another way to bolster our remembering, these images and items should be hyperbolic and saturated in as much sensory detail as we can imagine. We are more likely to remember a person or an event that has exaggerated details that we can latch onto so hyperbolizing key information and adding sensory details such as touch, taste, and sound makes crucial details pop in our minds. In this case, the bigger the exaggeration, the better. For our first memory palace and our example of how the process works, we will review the events of this first episode. I'll do a practice walk through my palace, which is the walk I take to work each morning. 
focusing intently on four different objects or areas along my route. The objects and spaces I'm choosing to focus on consist of a prayer garden, and then a circle shape, a clock tower, an open field, and a small pond. Now listen intently, and rather than focusing on the specifics of my spaces, focus on the images you hear. Put those images in your own space, inside your own palace. All you need to do during this time is listen, and think about your palace and the specific route you might want to follow. As I walk past the prayer garden, I see massive pink flowers dancing in the wind, looking as though they are made of complete and total glitter. On the perimeter of the garden, I see dried bushes and big clumps of dried wood and twigs. And on the edges of each piece of wood and twig, I see the flicker of a flame. After, as I approach the clock tower, the pink flowers have shrunk and are making their way to the top. But below, they are being followed the dried plants and pieces of wood have grown legs. They are trying to claw their way up to catch the flowers. And the flicker has turned to flame. As I slowly start to back away from the clock tower, there is a giant spark and all the wood is set aflame, making the twigs go faster up the clock tower and closer to the pink flowers. As I turn the corner and come out next to the big field, mass chaos. Pink flowers are running everywhere. There are screams and shrills, long, Big, bulky knives are falling from the sky, piercing the flowers, and even piercing what now are all flames. As I finally walk to the small pond, the surface is completely in a blaze. Giant, big eyes, big mouths are laughing. The flames have gotten what they wanted. I see roasted petals on the surface. And as I come a bit closer, I see dead flowers at the bottom. As I, and also you as well, 
hopefully practice this technique this season. Perhaps we can remember the individuals and their unique circumstances and survival, rather than a hard-to-digest number of statistics. These were people just like us, and we cannot let something of the sort happen again. Never again.